It's finally time. Let's talk about sight reading. And hello, everybody. Welcome to the Musician Toolkit, episode 11. My name is David Lane, and it is great to be with you once again. If you've followed this podcast since the beginning, and by beginning, I might mean episode one of this podcast, but I might even mean the the trailers, the little video clips that I put on uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube shorts for about a couple of months leading up to episode one. In both cases, the very first tool of the Musician Toolkit that I mentioned was sight reading. And it might be one of two, three, or even four of the 20 tools that you could argue should be ranked as the most important. Certainly the tool that you need the most is the one that most suits what you do primarily, whether that's composing or conducting or uh, playing jazz or playing classical. The tool best suited for one may not be the tool that's best suited for the other. But when it comes to performing in either classical music or or in musical theater and uh, you know probably a variety of other situations, if it involves sheet music, one of the tools that you really need to have at a high quality level is the ability to sight read. I put it first because, as I mentioned in my upcoming interview, it's one that did not come easily for me. In fact, I had already begun... Um, college as a music major, uh, someone who was on scholarship to play piano. In fact, that scholarship requirement included um, being an accompanist. And that's when I discovered I had a deficiency when it came to sight reading. And I made it a mission to get better. And and I did it. It took a, it took a while. And it's something that I feel still like today that I'm working to improve even more. But the ability to sight read has gained me jobs and kept me jobs that other things like playing by ear would not have done. Now, being able to play by ear has gotten me other jobs as well. So it's not to diminish the importance of, of one tool against the other. But I can specifically point to sight reading as being a huge asset in the value that I brought not only monetarily and professionally, but also just as an artist to the situation. I never want to assume that everybody listening is, um, you know, a high level musician already, and you might be just getting started. So to clarify, sight reading is really what you do the first time you play a piece. Everybody sight reads. But when we talk about sight reading as a skill, is it's being able to play that piece really well on the very first attempt. I have a fascinating guest today. Her name is Erica Sipes, and uh, she is a professional collaborative pianist. And she also, for the past three years, I believe, has had a live show on her YouTube channel every Sunday afternoon called Sight Reading Maverick. And she'll tell you more about that. But it Obviously, as the title says, it's all about sight reading. We're going to be talking today, of course, about sight reading, and it'll be the first of many times that we talk about that on the show, so we're, we're not going to cover everything. In fact, I think we, we really only touch on 
uh, a little bit of the physical tools to improve your sight reading. But we talk about something very also very important that gets neglected a lot of times in you know sight reading tutorials and articles and uh, that's all about mindset and uh, a lot of the emotional preparation that goes into sight reading that's just as important and we are going to discuss that and quite a bit more by the way following my conversation stay tuned at the end of the episode i'm going to share uh, another voicemail from a listener uh, responding to a previous episode and uh, look forward to sharing that with you. But let's go ahead and get into the meat of today's episode. And that is all about sight reading. Here's my conversation with Erica Sipes. It's my pleasure today to be talking to Erica Sipes. Erica, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you. And I'm really glad to be here. Now, what is it that you do professionally? I, you know, I think most musicians, they can't just say I do just one thing only. You probably, like most, have a few things you stitch together to to under the job title musician. So, uh, so what are some of the things you do? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I've definitely fallen in that camp. So my main job, I'd say, is I'm a professional piano collaborator. Mm -hmm. slash accompanist for people that don't know the more um, recent term of collaborators. So I accompany lots of musicians and singers of all different levels and ages. And I would say that's like the absolute joy of my life. Um, mm -hmm. It gives me a social outlet. It is just one of my favorite things to do. I love to be a support for, for any musician. Right. Um, so that's kind of my key role. And I am the piano collaborator at Radford University in Southwest Virginia. Um, so I do that much of my time. Right. And that's my focus. Uh, but then I'm also a practice coach. So I have mm -hmm. my own business called Beyond the Notes. I don't, you know, I am not a good marketer. So I get students dribble in here and there, and that's just fine with me. Right. Um, but I love that too. I love helping people practice. Mm -hmm. And I also teach some people. I work on sight reading with right. some people or rhythm. I have right. one student that just works on rhythm with me. Um, I also am the co-founder of the Alma Ensemble here in Roanoke. Mm -hmm. So we feature uh, composers that have been marginalized. Mm. So women, but also other different um, composers that have been marginalized through the years and we commission women to write music for us oh. and then I'm also the co-founder of Piano Music She Wrote mm. um, and we have a YouTube channel where we regularly feature piano music by women uh, who the, and all the scores for that are on IMSLP which is a great resource if people don't know about that online nice so, uh, you know, talking about collaborative pianists, I saw a post on Facebook the other day. It was it was from someone who who does that, but he's used to being called an accompanist, and he was like, he didn't really understand the term change, and and it's like I, I I'm more comfortable as an accompanist. And a bunch of people commented, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the more more common things was is really doesn't matter what you call it as long as you enjoy it and <laughs> absolutely yeah. and I'm not a big stickler I even have a blog post all about this I mean yeah. I accompany people and that's just the way it is but I I do understand too why there's been a little bit of a push I think the switch to collaborative pianist 
has been just to help elevate and bring awareness to yeah. the fact that collaborative pianists, accompanists have a really important role that goes beyond just like a backup pianist. <laughs> right. So. And and I'll say the first time I heard this term was on my other podcast, Life in the Pit, when I was talking to someone, uh, I was interviewing someone who was a music director and currently in Chicago. And she mentioned that she went to, I believe it was Cincinnati or, or somewhere like that for a collaborative piano program. And I was like, I, I never heard. I didn't know that was an option. I didn't <laughs> know about yeah. that. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have at the time when I went to college, you know, I was very tunnel vision composition <laughs> major is mm -hmm. what I wanted to mm -hmm. do. And, and I'm glad I did, but you know, kind of if I was looking at graduate degrees, that might have been something that was pretty interesting. Um, well, the thing that I know you for the best, um, you know, from your social media posts is that you have a passion for sight reading. In fact, you even have uh, you have a like a live YouTube show <laughs> that you do. I believe it's called Sight Reading Maverick. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But you know, just a and you know, everybody's episode is somebody's first episode for the podcast. But in episode one, I gave a list of the twenty tools that I think every musician should have. And I also, before the podcast launched, I put a bunch of you know, like forty-five second to one minute little clips of each tool. And in both cases, the very first one I mentioned was sight reading. And you know, not not to say that it's absolutely the most important, but it's the one for me that I I think it's probably been the, the single biggest reason for me having work and you know and I would I would have thought you know maybe when I was in high school that having a good ear would have kind of you know been the number one skill and that of course has been helpful and that's one of my kind of three cornerstone skills the other one being the ability to practice well but sight reading is something for me when I got to college, and I don't think I've told this story on <laughs> it, it on before, um, I was not any good, you know, compared to my playing level and my one of my scholarship requirements, because because they didn't have like a full time accompanist at the school. So people who played piano or were on scholarship for piano went to voice lessons and violin lessons and in and, and whatever. And there weren't a lot of us. So we each had like about four hours, three to four semester hours we had to do for that. And uh, I mean, the very first time that I was asked to come in, it was week four, uh, where someone had been working on, I, I, I could have danced all night from My Fair Lady. And, you know, I've seen the musical. I knew how that goes, but I never saw the music. And I think my eyes glazed over when I looked at it because they're on week four. It's not everyone goes slow and work up to tempo. It's like one, two, three, four, keep yep. up. <laughs> Launch and, in, uh, go right ahead. Yeah. And then I go to violin lesson and I'm trying to accompany, you know, reduction for Bach violin concerto. And, and I had to undergo my own journey. And I feel like it took a, uh, I think I made a lot of progress in the semester, but it took probably about a year and a half before I became what I would consider to be an average sight reader and I've had some experiences over the years that have pushed that further. So it's like, uh, I, I will not call myself elite, you know, at that skill, but it's become a good skill. And one that, you know, just this week I've had, I've had a job where it came in handy. So 
Talk about, uh, I feel like I talked enough about the passion of sight reading. How did you, when did this become a passion for you? Well, I mean, I started sight reading from a very early age, really from when right. I started learning how to play piano because mm -hmm. my mom was an amateur pianist. I started when I was five years old because I wanted to play piano and mm -hmm. be like her. So she had me reading duets with her from very early on. And I'm grateful for that. At the time, I don't think I would say I was grateful. It made me grumpy. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think because I was learning to read music at the same time I was learning to read books, uh, it made it so that reading music was actually not very much a stretch for me. And I think I learned how to read music in a different way than a lot of people these days are taught to read music. Right. Um, but anyway, but I think, so I took it for granted for much of my early years, mm -hmm. I would say until, uh, I don't know, I was like maybe high school, I started to be more aware of how valuable having that skill was. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I would play piano for the high school choir in my school. I was the only pianist, but right. it was really helpful that I didn't have to struggle through learning those parts in order to do that. And in order to fulfill that role, which yeah. I, I took a lot of pride in. So that also boosted my um, self feeling of self-worth as a musician, which is great too. Um, and then I think my passion for actually starting to figure out what goes into sight reading started when I was in grad school at Eastman. Mm -hmm. I had gone there as an undergrad and taken the undergraduate required piano sight reading course. Right. And, you know, when I went into that course, I was already a very, very good sight reader. But what was interesting is by the end of the year, I was a worse sight reader. Hmm. I, I, my skills decreased temporarily Wow! <laughs> after taking the class. And then when I went to grad school, they asked me to start teaching the class. Mm -hmm. And when they asked me to teach the class, I was very reticent. And I told them that. And I they said, well, why is that? Mm -hmm. And I told them it's because my skills decreased after taking the course. <laughs> and I wow. that worried me. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, I would be happy to teach the class if they would let me try my own methods mm -hmm. and try some things and kind of use the class as a little bit of an experiment, um, you know, for all of that. Hmm. And so they said yes, for which I was grateful. They gave me so much freedom to uh, experiment and to try different things. I also took um, an education course at the the University of Rochester. So it was divorced from just strictly musical education. Mm -hmm. And I took a cognitive science class um, to understand the brain better. Right. And all of that started to feed into this exploration of how can we teach this very complicated skill? Right. But that's so fundamental, not just if you want to be an accompanist, yeah. but for musicianship, period. Right. For any instrument. Um, and 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 if that love has never stopped, uh, and my curiosity has never stopped. So I'm still constantly doing reading and trying things with my students. Uh, and I still don't feel like I've gotten it right, but I think I keep getting little pieces to the puzzle. Have you ever been able to pinpoint what 
made it worse? You know, that year that you got worse? I, I've never had anyone ask me that question, but I think, I, I think uh, I'm coming around to another hypothesis about it through right. my recent conclusions. And here's what it is. I feel like when there's a stress put on the skill of sight reading and mm -hmm. you're just thrust into it without addressing some other key things, yeah, I think it's detrimental because it's too much information for the brain to process and the body to process within the context of having a new piece of music put in front of you. Right. Now, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because, um, you know, when I got to college for the first time, I, you know, I didn't think I was that bad at sight reading. I had some physical things I had to do, you know, most most notably making sure my eyes were not staring at the notes I was playing, but looking ahead a little bit. That's yeah. kind of, you know, one of the more basic tips. Uh, and, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But, you know, again, week four of a voice lesson, they've been working on this piece for four weeks and I'm just coming in. Here's the music. Let's play it. That was very stressful. And, sure. uh, and I hadn't experienced that type of thing before. Yeah. So yeah, that makes makes a difference and it really if you get those things right they they can come in handy because like i feel like the, the highest stress event that i've had you know post-college is uh working with a with a local university for their they have a class for theater majors about how to sing and of course i don't come in and get you know a whole lot of richard rogers or so you know or anything like that i get a bunch of steven sondheim leonard bernstein jason robert brown all these guys that are very difficult to to play and and you know especially like with sondheim <laughs> you don't always get what your ear expects and you're not always really sure what your eyes are seeing because you know you'll be looking at it might be um you know an augmented interval instead of the major equivalent or something like that absolutely yeah it's so, not easy stuff right but i did pretty well with that compared to other times and actually as i kept coming back i got even better and better because i think part of it sounds like we agree on this part of sight reading well is a mindset it's that you're relaxed into the experience you're understanding that your job is not to play everything a hundred percent correct Bingo. and you've got a little yeah. leeway but the idea is just to get as much as you can on that day and you know and relax and and of course you know there's things that we can do to get better so you know one of the talking points i had was you know sight reading is a skill but it's not one that you're necessarily well i, I hate to say no no music skills are inborn you know so i guess that's kind of the wrong way of putting it but it's not necessarily a skill that you have to be naturally good at to eventually become good at it. And I think that's the case with just about any musical skill. They're all tools that we can improve in specific ways. Um, so, you know, we've talked about situations, you know, like where sight reading is a premium skill, like being in a chorus or being, if you play for any kind of auditions, you know, it's like you, you don't meet these people before they come in this, like they give you their book. <laughs> and you play, I think audition pianists are really have a specialty on this type of thing. You know, they, they really get to do that. Um, but maybe let's just talk about what are some of the physical and maybe mental or emotional roadblocks 
that keep musicians from playing well? So you mentioned one already, stress is one. What yeah. are some other roadblocks? Um, I think feeling like you have to play all the right notes. You touched on that. Right. You know, I, I mean, I can't, uh, to use the word we just used, I can't stress enough how much I see that that's the expectation that people think there is for people yeah. that are sight reading. Mm-hmm. And I just say over and over again, no, it has nothing to do with playing all the notes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it has so much more to do about these other things that we can talk about. But um, so, yes, yeah, stress uh, and the the false expectation that you have to play all the notes. Um, I think a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling like if you weren't born with a skill that there's not much you can do. Right. Another big one for me that I have been talking about a lot lately is the feeling that the only way to get better is to just keep doing it Mm -hmm. without any specific set of strategies. Right. 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 Or missing all of the skills or an understanding of all the skills that go into good sight reading. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, so often I look up articles online about 10 tips for how to sight read better. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that they're not right. Like things like looking over the music before you start. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What are other things? Making sure you look at the time signature, the key signature, the tempo. Yes, those are all really important things too. But if you don't have the other skills that I talk about related to sight reading, it's not going to help that much. Um, So I would say that's another one is just that, yeah, just keep plopping music in front of yourself and expect that it's going to get better. Because I think the other thing is, you know, I think people have such a hang up over sight reading. So if they take that approach, okay, I'm just going to look at a new piece of music every day for a hundred days and I should be better at the end. Well, what happens then to their attitude if at the end of a hundred days, it's still a struggle, Yeah, which it might be. Right. then they might give up. And that's too, I, I feel that that's unnecessary and sad. And I don't like that. <laughs> right. Um, so let, uh, let's look at just some of the physical things. So as I, so I kind of alluded to one of them already, because I, I think anybody who's ever had a teacher on siring, this is something you can almost count on is uh, where are your eyes in the process? So, you know, so start where they shouldn't be at, at all, if you can help it. And that is your hands. Exactly. And, and of course, now we're being specific to piano, but so so I think, you know, there are probably some instrumentalists. I, I imagine if you play like, you know, brass instrument, you're not watching your fingers play the vowels, you know. And so some I think some musicians have an advantage of this already. Um, but but piano sp- specifically, you know, that we love to watch our hands uh, whenever possible. So getting the eyes off the music. In fact, I would say that's the when when I teach beginning students, that's almost the number one indicator of who's going to be the ones that naturally memorize well and play by ear or the ones that sight read well. It's like, where do their eyes go without me mm. telling them? And and you'll see mm. some that actually can't get their eyes off the book. They're afraid to leave the book. And and they're, sure. and they struggle with memorization. They struggle with playing by ear, but yeah. the, but the ones that, uh, you know, that keep looking at their hands and you have to remind them, look up at the book, that's uh that's I think that's the big thing is to lose the dependency of looking at your hands. But then also, you know, as I mentioned before, you're looking at the book. Are you staring at the notes you're playing? 
or yeah. are you looking past it? Do you, do you have like a general guideline for where the eyes are on the sheet music in relation to what's being played? You know, I don't like to come up with a formula because I think it depends on every different piece of music you're playing. Right. Um, it depends on how dense it is harmonically, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So for that reason, I don't like to come up with a formula. Like some people say, look, a measure ahead. Right. Whatever. Yeah. But what I one thing I do stress is that, and this might sound counterintuitive, okay. but um, I think the eyes need to stay on the music as much as possible, but in a relaxed state. Right. And focusing on recognizing patterns and patterns yeah. can be harmonic. They can be melodic. They can be rhythmic. Mm -hmm. Those are what your eyes and brain and ears should be processing all at once in, in good sight reading. Right. So that your eyes are not, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this like with a really difficult, like Jason Robert Brown noodley accompaniment, right. which he's so good at. It's easy to get so, you know, looking at every single little note on the page, your brain then encounters roadblock. Like that's mm -hmm. what happens to mine. Like smoke comes out of my ears and you can't look ahead. So what I try to stress with people is looking for those patterns so that you can have a somewhat relaxed gaze on the music. Right. Because what I say is the more you stare at the music, the less you're going to see. Mm. Whereas if you can look at the music and only be trying to pick out what's most important and then see everything else in your peripheral vision, mm -hmm. actually the more notes you're going to end up seeing. Right. It's right. this weird thing. Right. I've thought I, about like, you know, if, you know, imagine you have a group of friends and you, and you're taking a picture mm -hmm. and, you know, your best friend is on the left. Well, you know, it's like, you don't, you don't zoom in on her. You'll leave everybody else out of the frame. It's like, but yeah. you also want he, you know, he or she in the frame. <laughs> so you can't like just ignore it. You've got to right. frame your vision so that you see it. Um, when it comes to chords, uh, you know, some like d dense chords, do you have a, any kind of a general strategy? Like, do you do you think like bass and soprano? Yes. And then do your best with what's in between? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Bingo. So, you know, um, one of my big soapbox things is for a lot of sight reading practice, mm -hmm. people assign hymn reading Yeah. Uh, or Bach chorales. Those are huge ones. And I think that's fine, but mm -hmm. I think the approach is usually not real helpful so that, that a teacher will say, well, I want you to read this hymn for me, but they don't say, you know, focus on the outer voices. Right. They say you have to, so the, the student thinks they have to be able to read every single voice for every single chord. And that's, again, when we get into this roadblock, our brain can sh just shut down and our eyes right. shut down. It's too much info. So yeah, I always say with dense writing, soprano and bass. And that's like where you have laser focus with your vision. Mm -hmm. And then you use your ears, you use your peripheral vision to catch everything else that's in the middle. Right. If whatever you can get. But what I try to get students to realize is that if worse comes to worse, if all you do is play the soprano and the bass, mm -hmm. it's going to sound like a piece of music. Yeah. Right? It's right. going to sound pretty exactly. darn good. Yeah. And the middle stuff, whatever you can get filled in in the middle is like bonus. Right. <laughs> you know, 
And that um, ba- and that base, if if you're accompanying somebody, and, I, and it's different if you're like me, a sight reading for yourself. But if you're accompanying somebody else, um, <laughs> that was one of the tricks I discovered while I was trying to get better at sight reading. It's like play the left hand, and yeah. they can still sing their part. Uh, and and of course, sometimes you know if you're if you don't have a page turner, you know it's like it's uh, it's almost if you can, it's almost better to turn the page with the right. You know, of yeah. course, it's right there. <laughs> you don't have to reach over the other way. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that is definitely true. Is just um, and and I think uh, the other thought that I had was what goes in between the bass and soprano. Um, you you can make educated guesses on while you're trying to read it better if you have a more in depth knowledge of theory. Like if you've if you've gone through theory and, and actually gone over voice leadings, you know, this is, it, it's funny when you're in college and you're learning that, especially the composers of which I was one is like, well, I'm not going to write like Bach. Why do I need to know this? <laughs> um, well, there, that's another episode. I'll get into, you know, why that's, that's good. But for the specific purpose of playing music, reading off of a sheet music, um, it helps you understand what's likely to be there. And yeah. you can also see in terms of, you know, the intervals, you know, we talk about the shape, you know, just the repetition of notes and moving up and down. And the thing is, uh, your the notes in between don't often, unless it's like a parallel motion, unless you've got like a chord shape, that pattern, um, they're not moving much, you know, so you, yeah. you're not having to do a whole lot. It's the outer voices that are doing most of the motion. So, uh, so yeah, I would say, you know, the more you understand about, about your theory, I think that plays a role into how well you sight read. And I mean, are there any other like skills other than sight reading? And and you know, maybe maybe ear training to a point. Is there anything else that you've noticed over the years that helps improve the sight reading itself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but before I talk about those, I want to just add one thing here sure. in relation to your talk about theory. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have a hang up about theory, mm-hmm. myself included. Like when I was in school, I wasn't very good at music theory in terms mm. of labeling things. It was right. very intimidating to me. I always had a very good innate understanding of music and right. harmony, but man, you tell me to do dictation or something like that. And I just crumple. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lots of sad faces on my final exams in theory class. Oh. Uh, but um, but what I want to say about that, I say this because I am always working on improving my understanding of right. theory and being able to connect what I've learned with what I innately know or understand. Right. And um, so I, I don't want people who aren't good at theory to think that they can't do sight reading because they don't yeah. have that piece of the puzzle yet. Right. And what I would also add to that is, you know, when we were talking about focusing on the soprano and bass, another advantage of doing that is when your eyes are less focused in every note on the page, Right. it enables your ears to kick into action more because, mm-hmm. you know, if you have so much stress on one sense, it cuts down on your others. Right. So I try to encourage students to use their ears as well. And so when you start tapping into that, when you're working on sight reading, then you're able to start understanding the theory better because you're hearing it all. 
And then eventually you can, if you want, start to put labels on them like chords and chord progressions. So anyway, I just wanted to add that in for anybody out there that might feel a little bit insecure about their music theory training or understanding. Right. Right. Um, I am proof that, you know, I'm almost 50 years old, but Mm -hmm. I'm still working on that aspect for myself. Right. Right. Um, Other skills. Yeah. So for me, uh, we talked about not looking at the keyboard. Mm-hmm. using our ears and applying theory, um, pattern reading. So, yeah. I mean, and I think any musician can work on this in the context of their music that they're learning. Um, always be trying to simplify the music that's in front of you, the notation, by looking at patterns. What I tell students is that there are only so many patterns, again, whether it's rhythmic, harmonic, or uh, rhythmic, wait, rhythmic, melodic, or harmonic. Right. There's only so many of those that composers utilize in their music. Yeah. So that the more we can start to see those, the more we can then be reading music in chunks mm-hmm. and processing music in chunks. So it makes sight reading more easy to read musically. Right. It makes it easier to relax your eyes because you're just you're recognizing, oh, that's a scale coming up. Okay, great. So I can look ahead. Or I recognize this chord progression. I see we're going to have a deceptive cadence coming up. Okay. You use your ear to help you so that you can look ahead. Um, That's that's another important thing. Um, Developing the strongest rhythmic understanding that you can. Yeah. And that you're learning to read rhythms in beats yeah. Rather than, I mean, so many people that I work with read and process rhythms by note value. So mm-hmm. if you have an eighth note and two sixteenths within a beat, they mm-hmm. will be processing it as one eighth note. Okay, got it. Now I'm going to read a sixteenth note. Okay, got it. Another sixteenth note. Yeah. Rather than being able to see a dotted eighth and two sixteenths and going yum, bum, 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 bum. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And what I think is important about that approach to rhythm reading mm-hmm. is that that's in the context of a beat. Yeah. So that then that brings into it too an, another important skill, which is being able to count out loud when you play. Yeah. Not necessarily when you're sight reading. When you're sight reading, that's again too much information. Right. But I get my students to count out loud to practice counting out loud or conducting mm-hmm. um, in their solo pieces that they're doing or you know when they're learning music because then it's going to instill this understanding of pulse and a beat that then when they go to sight read, it's more likely that that's going to be an underlying current that's going to make it easier for them to keep on going no matter what happens when they're sight reading. Right. So... I guess those are kind of like my basic top skills. Right. Uh, no, I, I love the idea. And, and uh, you know, one, again, 20, 20 tools I've identified. One of them is the the ability to play any written rhythm. And it's like as almost like a priority. And, uh, you know, and thank you percussion lessons for <laughs> kind of helping me yeah. with that a little bit. Um, yeah, that, that'll be definitely something we focus on uh, in, in another episode, but yeah, that's, that is very helpful. Now, one of the things that I, I feel like we ought to address, um, because this was something, I don't know how many years I'd been teaching before 
it occurred to me that this was even an, an, an issue. You know, I, I basically recited all the things that, you know, people talk about with sight reading and what I'd learned about where the eyes go. Hmm. Um, but one of the things that I figured out now, some, some instrumentalists don't have this problem. Like if you're a vocalist, obviously you don't have this problem. If you play, um, you know, like trumpet or I think woodwinds, you know, you're kind of used to not looking at your hands and so forth. So again, this is not a problem. But there are some instrumentalists like keyboardists and I would say percussionists, uh, you know, like like if you play like vibraphone, you know, or something like that, mm. where you don't always know what's going on <laughs> with your hands. Like and uh, I found and what I found was if uh, if my piano students, a lot of times I would have them play a key and, you know, tell me what it is now they could reach around they could feel around see what's around it with the black key shapes and all that uh and i would find that you know most of them couldn't tell me accurately until we started working on it so hand awareness you know where are your hands so have you have you explored exercises just to work on that skill a little bit i do it within the context of talking about and it, and it relates to pattern reading, um, right. hand positions. Yes. So I try to get students, but you have to be reading in patterns and in yes. groups of notes to do this. Right. I try to say, okay, does that first phrase is, does it, can it fall within a closed hand position or a slightly expanded hand position or an octave hand position so that their hands are not having to do a separate movement for each note that they're going to. Right. Right. Um, and that also can help with then starting to come up and with this or have discussions about fingering. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. obviously there's scale fingerings, but, um, you know, OK, so if you identify that a phrase is all within a hand position. All right. What's the bottom note? What's the lowest note of that pattern of that right. phrase? OK, that's where your thumb goes. If you're playing with your right hand, what's mm -hmm. the top note? Oh, it's the pinky. OK. So expand your hand, get your hand kind of in that position. The rest is right under your fingers. Stay calm and just let them, you know, then you can just read the contour and most likely you'll get mostly the right notes. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of what your original question was. Oh, uh, just, just kind of getting, you know, the understanding oh, what the yeah. hands are doing without looking. Right. So, but once you're, you're playing more with this concept of patterns and hand positions, yes, it's easier to move around because mm -hmm. you have more time, first of all, because if you're moving in the hand positions, you only have to move every measure, let's say, yeah. or every phrase. Um, and then you have time to just process things better and you can stay closer to the keys. Yes. You're less likely when, when students are not as comfortable with the topography of the keyboard, when they're not reading in patterns, they tend to do so much vertical motion. Yeah. It's like they're scared of the keyboard. So they mm -hmm. lift their hands off and then right. they're in trouble, right? Then right. they have to look down to see right. where to go next. Right. And another thing I would say with the topography thing is, a lot of students haven't developed the assurance that they can correct a wrong note mm. by using their ear. Yeah. 
they feel like in order to see if they've hit the right note, what do they have to do? They have to look down at the keyboard right. and see, oh, wait, my third finger, is it on an E? Oh, it is on an E. I'm in the right place. Right. Versus training them to just hear, you know, in a in the course of a C major scale, oh, that did not sound like an E natural. That sounded like a minor scale. So my third finger needs to come right. down off of that black key. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's very good. I, you know, while I had to work on what my eyes were doing for sight reading, I didn't have to work on what my hands were doing. And, and I credit that to a silly game I played as a child. And that was, um, you, you know, my, my parents, were, I, I, maybe not as a child, I was, but maybe when I was a, a middle schooler, or high schooler, I was able to stay up a little bit later. I would uh, close the door to the hallway to where my parents would go to sleep, you know, so I could have some privacy. But then I wouldn't turn on the lights, you know, I just yeah. play completely in the dark, you know, and I was, and I think at the time I was thinking, you know, what if I were blind, you know, if, and I had mm -hmm. to play piano, what would, what would it be like? And, you know, I guess I could have put a blindfold on too, but it's a fun little game um, that, you know, just makes you hyper-focus on the other senses. And it wasn't until yeah. I got it to be a teacher that I stopped crediting the ear so much and started realizing it was a sense of touch. You know, it's it's the phys physicalization of what does this feel like when I'm doing it correctly, in addition to what does it sound like? <laughs> it's a combination of all yeah. the senses, and I can't stress that enough. And I use the close, I have students close their eyes all the time, mm. because I think it does give you a different sense of, you know, the hand positions and how yeah. intervals feel and sound, like you said, at the yeah. same time. It's that merging of all those senses that I think is so crucial. Right. Cutting out the visual though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, just for the sake of time, uh, uh, let's, let's go to some of these other points. So what kind of a routine should someone take if they're going to improve or maintain their sight reading? I mean, let's just say if they decided like they were what, where I was in, in college and, and realized that they're really not adequate for what's being asked of them to do and they need to take steps to improve what are some of sure. the methods for that yeah um i think a couple things first of all i would approach working on a lot of these separate skills like the looking for patterns not looking at your hands um working on rhythms do that apart from your sight reading practice Right. So keep, you know, every day, maybe pick one little skill to work on within your other music making. Right. Um, or like you go to a rehearsal for yeah. a band or something, if you're a uh, woodwind player. So go to band and intentionally try to not use your ears more or uh, I don't know. I'm not thinking of good right. examples on the fly, but, you know, not in a sight reading context. Right. So work on those skills separately. But then every day when you can, yes, then have some sight reading time, right. but don't necessarily obsess over those skills you're working on concurrently, um, but just let yourself read. Maybe right. focus on things like um, just not stopping right. on trying to look for patterns, on trying to have a little bit more of a relaxed eye uh, vision thing. Right. Focus on those things instead. Or look at before you start, practice looking ahead to see if you can catch the trouble spots that might throw you off. Or 
get better and better at choosing a tempo that successfully lets you get through the piece, you know, focus on different things when you're sight reading versus when you're working on those specific skills. Right. Uh, I think that's probably one of my biggest things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just putting yourself, if you can, this is tricky, but put yourself into music reading experiences that involve other people whenever possible. Right. Because I think working on sight reading by yourself is so hard Mm -hmm. because you don't realize when you're stopping the pulse or hesitating just a little bit. Right. So as scary as it might be for like a pianist who may not have great, or they don't think they have good sight reading skills. If you're offered a chance to go sub for a choir rehearsal, Mm -hmm. if it's a safe opportunity, if you know the choir director, if you know, they're not going to, you know, bad mouth you, if you don't do as well, take that opportunity because I'm sure you've experienced this too. And you have with that experience in school, Yeah, there's almost nothing quite like being dumped into the deep end Yeah, to improve. You have no choice. Right. That's true. And I think what people will also find is that people are very forgiving. Right. Or they're so busy conducting that they don't realize what you're leaving out or messing up. They're grateful to have you there. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> and I think there's an important lesson in that. You know, look, you don't have to be perfect, but it's an important skill. You can get better. It helps them. It's just a good uh, situation all around. So I think that's another thing I would encourage people to do when the, the opportunity arises. Right. And what kind of materials uh, do you recommend for just kind of progressing your way up, starting with something easy and going forward with? Uh, I struggle with that, David, in all honesty. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of series out there, uh, especially right. for piano, for instance, mm-hmm. but I know other instruments too, that are like guided uh, steps through right. improving sight reading. I have to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of most of them. Right. Because a lot of the music that's in them, uh, it's not very musical. Right. They're yeah. not very pattern-based. Right. And so I, I don't always recommend them. Right. Um, there's a um, series by Paul Harris that's okay, you know, right. uh, that can be used. But I, I just, I would rather, even though it's tricky, I would encourage people to take like, um, maybe piano pedagogy books or method books yeah. that have actual music in them, uh, original music. No, not, what would you call it? Right, right. Uh, you know, well, repertoire, yeah. <laughs> repertoire, yeah. yeah. Actual pieces of music. Yeah. Um, and, and always try to get a level below or two levels below what you're currently capable of doing as a solo pianist. Right. Now I'll share, I'll share something I did and I think it was helpful. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to know, you know, I did so many things. It's hard to know what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was in college, you know, I mean, I was years out of a method book, you know, but I still had most of the Alfred's basic piano library method book that I went through as a student. And I think I pulled out either level two or level three, something that I knew would be easy. And I knew that, well, Technically, by the definition of the word, this is not sight reading. I've played all these before, but I haven't played them in like eight or nine years. And so it's almost like doing it again, you know, and 
uh, and, and I found that that gave me a feeling of safety that, uh, hey, it's not really brand new, but it gave me an opportunity that I can kind of trust myself to think more about how I'm playing it, not just what I'm playing. And, right. uh, and so, yeah, I would say, you know, I would think, yeah, getting some method books, but if you're a current student in a method book, you know, and if you're not like in the first couple of levels, it might be a good idea to go back to, cause I, I bet, I, I bet most students don't really remember, you know, especially if they're going a new piece each week or two, what they played two years ago. And so Absolutely. getting those back out. And playing them again with what you what you know and what you're working with, and then kind of proceeding forward, that could be a a way. Um, you know, we kind of mentioned you know a lot of people mention hymn hymnals. Um, I think that might be good for just picking out soprano and bass. You know, Absolutely. just for for that. You know, because because actually it gets them to be a bit of a problem. You know, because hymns are written to be sung, not played, and you what to do with the tenor line is <laughs> a bit of a conundrum. <laughs> yeah. You need a really big hand usually for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, it was right hand take it or left hand. Take it? Um, so, so yeah, that maybe just to get to practice seeing the bass and soprano, that might be a, a good place. Um, and then I know that I've heard you reference this before. There's a good, uh, for no matter what instrument you play, um, if you're not a beginner at this and you're just trying to get better, if you feel like you're an intermediate site reader and you're trying to push the envelope, uh, imslp.org. <laughs> yep. It's like almost, I guess any, basically anything that's not more recent than the past hundred years is going to be on there almost right. certainly. And, and sometimes arranged for different instruments, you know, like, like if you're a pianist, you can, you can go find some orchestral pieces arranged and, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do there. And it seems like they sometimes have packages on there, like for intermediate pianists and little groups and so forth. I haven't explored that recently, but. Yeah, sometimes. And I know that uh, I've recently found out that there is a way on IMSLP to actually search for things by level. Hmm. Can't tell you how to do it, but there is a way to do that. Right. Um, I think even within piano music, mm. you can grade it by level. So that okay. I don't know that it's a surefire way, but it would at right. least give you a place to start. Um, for piano too, I would say like any Cherny or uh, I don't know how to say it, Duvernoy, any of yeah. those, yeah, those yeah. early early methods, those have great exercises that are just full of patterns. Yeah. Um, and they're usually in the easier keys. Um, and then you can also start transposing some of those things. If like a whole book is in C major, try transposing because then you yeah. are learning to read by interval and pattern. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, we talk about pattern. That, that seems to be something we kind of neglected or, you know, that I haven't really put much thought into that um, the ability to transpose can certainly augment your ability to sight read because he takes you now you can't think about the notes you have to notice what the pattern is yeah you know? absolutely and yeah. kind of going back to you know you were talking about using an earlier method book to use as sight reading i think that's a good idea i would add though that like if your teacher or you have put in letter names or yeah. fingerings above every note just go ahead and erase all of that if you're done yeah. with the book mm -hmm. because then when you want to go back to sight read i just would not want anyone to be reading no you know pitch yes. by pitch or finger by finger and that tends to happen a lot so yes yes yeah. um 
Yeah. And by the way, just to elaborate for those who, who don't know, imslp.org, it's basically it's a huge a public domain sheet music library. And, um, you know, every now and then some students will say, I found this online and they, they brought in a version of like an easy version of, um, you know, Moonlight Sonata or something mm -hmm. like that. And most of the places you find those things online, the, the notation programs used are not very good. And so like the spacing's off and there's some, you know, weird beamings with eighth notes and, and such. And so, so I just say wherever possible, go to imslp.org first. <laughs> you're, you're most likely to find authentic sheet music that's been scanned in, you know, and not just kind of done on a, you know, free share notation program. <laughs> Good point, David. Yes. Yeah. Have you have you found any apps or any digital tools that are helpful for sight reading that can help with any of these aspects of musicianship? You know, I really haven't. And I, I partly just because I haven't had the time to dedicate right. to doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's, a, is it Lila Viss, I think is her name. Oh. She's done a lot of work. She's a pianist, yeah. pedagogy uh, person. And I think she's done a lot of research and mm -hmm. she's constantly looking at all the new apps that are coming out. Right. Um, but yeah, I just haven't had the time okay. to dedicate to that. Okay. Yeah. So so at this point, let's, let's talk about uh, your YouTube channel, you're your, in the Sight Reading Maverick. So just tell us what is that show all about? Sure. So I started this at the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. kind of because I was bored, yeah. <laughs> as we all were stuck at home. And I was kind of lonely. And so I started just doing this show where I would live stream myself sight reading piano music that I found on IMSLP for an mm. hour. Yep. And um I like to talk. So I always, for the first, like two thirds of each episode, as I'm looking at a new piece, I'll kind of talk through it a little bit. Yeah. So I'll look ahead in the music, um, find spots that I think are going to catch me off guard. And I just kind of talk through it so that people see what's going on in my head right. before I even start. Because that's what we always advocate to our own students, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'll talk about how do we find a good tempo to choose. Uh, I'll look at tricky rhythms and then I'll sight read it. And then at the end, I'll usually kind of give myself some feedback. Sometimes right. I'm really embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll just say, oh, that piece was gorgeous. Right. Uh, but I'll kind of recap. So I do that for an hour. And a lot of people will send in requests to me of pieces they want me to play. Oh, okay. Um, Sometimes yeah. composers will send me their own music mm. and will ask me to read it live. Yep. And that's really helpful for them because as you you probably you know as a composer, yes. it's hard sometimes to choose how to notate things. Right. In a way that's going to be translated by the pianist in the way that you envision. Right. So sometimes they'll just ask me to read it so I can check their notation. Right. And one of the hardest things, I mean, besides that was the first thing I had to get over as a composer. It took me a long time before I could adequately assess how difficult a piece was going to be. Mm -hmm. And and I think I was probably 30 before I really had that down pretty well. <laughs> sure. But, but yeah, it's like I used to have a reputation. It's like if you if you want me to write you a piece and you want it to be hard, ask for medium and if you want it to be medium <laughs> ask for easy <laughs> i think you know it's particularly hard to write for piano i think mm -hmm. 
um, because it has so many options for uh, voices and harmonies and all that. Right. Um, So, so that's my show. There was something else I was going to say. Oh, in below the video box too. I always include the links to the scores in IMSOP. And I really, really want people if they want to, to follow along in the score, mm-hmm. either during the show or even afterwards, so that they can see all the things I get wrong and all the things I leave out. But what I keep always saying is my goal is to keep the pulse. Yes. And to be as musical as possible and to get inside the head of the composer as much as I can um, during the show. Yes. So I want people to see see everything together to see how that happens. Right. Um, right. So yeah. Uh, that's so I'll show. put I'll put a the link to your YouTube channel in the show notes, and I'd encourage all the listeners, you know, go ahead go ahead and subscribe and you know hit the bell the notification because you do these shows live. And yep. um, now I don't know do you do you engage with comments at all live? I uh, do. I try yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't get lots of comments, but sometimes people will ask questions. Or just simply leave feedback. I think a lot of people love the show because they're introduced to pieces and composers that they've never heard before. Right. Um, and I mean, there's so much music out there; it's unbelievable. So, right. yeah. Right. And then, uh, and then I was, uh, you know, just kind of before we did our interview, I just looked up online a few other things, and you do have a blog, and yep. it looks like it, you you have a lot of thoughts on on practice as well, sight reading, and um, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, where can, you know, so besides the YouTube channel, where can people follow you or find out more about what you're doing? Sure. Um, let's see. I have a business webpage, which is beyond the notes, coaching.com. And, but I, I don't keep that updated, but that's just sort of my basic information. And you, I link to everything there, Yeah. but also, so I have my YouTube channel. Um, I'm on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Twitter is probably my most active social media I use. Right. And a lot of times I'll kind of go off on a thread about my thoughts about sight reading or performing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Twitter, I'm at Erica Sipes. Uh, I'm also on a newer social media site called Post. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's on Post, same right. handle, it's Erica Sipes. Right. Um, I'm on Facebook and people can follow me there. Although I don't post as often there. Right. Um, yeah, I guess those are kind of my primary places to track me down. Well, I encourage everyone, especially, I think, I think the sight reading show is, is helpful because, because of your comments, uh, and also because you're not afraid to be a little vulnerable and to admit I didn't do so well today. And I think that's, as we talked about really at the beginning of this episode, that's one of the most important things is to accept that, uh, you know, you, you won't always play your best. You won't always get every note correct, you know, and so forth. So, well, and sight reading is so dependent upon, like, I tend to get migraines. So if I have a migraine on a show day, I have to approach it very differently. Yeah. Um, and that's life, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as musicians, you go to a gig, you don't know how you're going to feel that day. So right. I feel like you have to be ready to perform at different levels. And there's different strategies for that. And I talk about that on the show. Right. Um, So that can be helpful. And I would just add with the show that like, if you can't catch it live, all the episodes, of course, are archived on a playlist um, under sight reading videos. 
So there's like over 130 episodes. So <laughs> it'll keep Great. you really busy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, ne- next time you under the weather to get a <laughs> got nothing to do, I guess go ahead and just binge watch. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, Erica, thank you for taking time to chat with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. And that concludes my conversation with Erica Sipes. Definitely go check out the links in our show notes to, to find her YouTube channel. And, you know, also follow her uh, on the social media sites that she she mentioned. And now I'd like to share with you recent feedback from a listener regarding uh, the episode eight, which was my conversation with Frank Lehman uh, all about John Williams. Here is the comment that was left from a listener. This is a belated feedback message for you, David Lane. I'm enjoying your podcast so much. I did send you a message on LinkedIn, and I don't think you received it immediately following listening to the February 13th episode. I think that was episode eight. It was about the music of John Williams, and you had a fascinating guest that you were interviewing. And I have to say, because I've been so focused on watching the Academy Award nomination films, and that award show is coming up soon, and learning uh, uh, just a tiny bit about all the nominations uh, that John Williams has, uh, including this latest one of the Fablemans. Your episode was so well-timed, and I learned much more than any written article about the Academy Awards and Best Music coming up. So thank you for a Fascinating, fascinating um, episode. And may I suggest that you do several podcasts looking at music used in films and interviewing experts like you did and speaking from your own experience about the power of music in film. And uh, I guess the beginning of the end of that got cut off just a little bit. But I want to thank that listener for leaving the message. And uh, afterwards, I did go to LinkedIn to find her message. Uh, that is an app that uh, I probably should be more engaged with than I am. But I sometimes need reminding to go check that. So I did. And I did uh, respond to her uh, message. But I'll also just say here, kind of um, to reiterate, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoy film music. And I love talking about it. Um, I did kind of mention in some earlier episodes, uh, maybe the first episode of, you know, why I don't do a film music podcast and it just has to do with there's so many out there. And um, there, there are ones that I would maybe recommend more than others. Uh, but, but there are some exceptionally well done film music podcasts out there. Um, so when I talk about it, I want to make sure that I'm talking about it from a standpoint of how it relates to the tools of musicianship, which I think we did pretty well, uh, with episode eight, but that said, I know we're going to talk to Frank Lehman again, in uh, probably just a matter of a few months, uh, to finish the conversation. We want to really do a deep dive into the empire strikes back. So that'll be coming up, um, in uh, really a couple of months. It won't be too long. And, um, Certainly, I think there are ways to also talk about some other uh, film music topics that we will we will get in there. It might be something that we only get to, you know, two or three times a year. 
but definitely uh i love film music and i love to talk about it and this will not become a film music podcast but i certainly want to include it in our discussion before i wrap up i want to remind you if you have a private studio of any kind you really owe it to yourself to at least give fonz a free trial could save you hours of admin work and also headaches for for uh, trying to schedule clients or students and also tracking down payments. So go check that out in my show notes and begin your free trial of Fonz and see if that might be something that you can use. I uh, just want to remind you also, uh, it's very valuable if you enjoyed this episode to not only share it, but to leave a five-star rating and review, especially if you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And that is all for this week. I'll be back with you next week with a new episode. Thank you for listening.